Hey, it's Josh Brown. We are live from the compound for an all-new episode of Talk Your Book with my friend Allison Schrager. Allison, say hello. Hello. Okay. Allison's book is blowing up right now. We're only days away from the launch of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Can I say that right? Yep. Okay. Um, we're not going to talk about brothels, but we are going to talk about some of the everyday economics lessons that everyone can learn from some of the strangest, I would say, anecdotes and stories um, that you've ever read in a book of this sort. You're going to love it. Stick around. Okay. So, uh, Allison, first things first, um, I love the cover. I love the art. Did you design any of this or you just kind of approved it? I take no credit. You take no credit? Okay. I published books. I didn't have that much say either. But let's let's get into like the 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 idea behind the book, which it, I'm going to tell it to you, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. I feel like you have this really incredible breadth of expertise about economics, but it's so boring to have an economics conversation. So instead of that, you go find all these people that are exhibiting traits that are classic economic ideas. And you tell their stories and why you can pull some investing lessons out of that. So I think like you're, you're talking about Hollywood, you're talking about surfing, you're talking about horse breeding and what are the lessons? Like was that the original idea and did it come out exactly like you thought it would? It did. My idea was this because um, I have background in academia. I worked in finance and I'd worked in journalism and it dawned on me. That, you have a PhD. Yes. You're going to drop that. It's all right. I didn't drop it. Oh, yeah. um, you know, it's cooler if you're just like, I yeah, have a background. I have one too. It's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Is uh, that any, I was thinking specifically like I wanted to bring financial economics, which is a discipline within economics, more to the front because you hear a lot about macro, you hear about applied micro, which is like what Freakonomics is. Right. But I feel like financial economics had implications beyond financial markets. Financial economics is investing, insurance, um, portfolio management? It's the study of risk in financial markets. Okay. And it dawned, the other thought I had was that any economic model, financial model or macro model, is really effectively a parable, right? Because what, what are parables? But they're just these little abstractions of how the world works to teach people a broader lesson. And that's right. what a model is. So, I, I mean, I think, like, this book is a direct descendant of, like, Adam Smith. Like, that's what he was doing. He was talking about merchants and he yeah. was talking... And, but from those parables... He was explaining how money moves and, or how ma people make financial decisions. Exactly, because parables are great storytelling. It's how people connect and relate to things. So I figured I could find characters right. who illustrate these concepts. So, all right, let's get into some of the characters because I'm reading the book for the second time. I read it when it was a manuscript, uh -huh. and now I'm like halfway through my second go-round. And like some of these chapters are just amazing. Like they're standalone. They're uh -huh. so great. I want to talk about the Hollywood chapter. Somebody came along and convinced people that put money behind Hollywood movies, that they could come up with factors that would ensure a better portfolio of things to back. Like, I don't know what they were using, like the directors or the theme or whatever. Like, how, tell me about how you found that story and what it's about. So um, I spoke to a lot of people in the movie industry because I was looking for something, you know, risk measurement. What's immeasurable? Right. Movie risk, because uh, a quote you, you recently said that, as William Golden said, no one knows anything. Nobody, like, you have no way of knowing. No matter how much money you spend or who, what star you sign, you just can't tell you're going to have a head. Yeah, because as you know in finance, some risks are easier to measure than others. Right. And I was looking for something that's hard to measure. And so I started talking to people in the movie industry, and they told me about this guy, Ryan Kavanaugh. And this was when his whole scheme was just blowing up. And that... It's about 10 years ago? Yeah. Well, it started then where he had a, Mo a Monte Carlo simulation, which is 
what we use in finance all the time right. to try to predict what movies were going to make money. And like anything, like a lot of models, at first it looked great, did some back testing. Back tests look good in Hollywood too. Yeah. Right. But after a while, it fell apart because they all do because the problem with the movie industry is the data is always changing. Right. And the, the profit models are so skewed. It gets right. really just a complete crapshoot. They're so, so hard to predict that eventually his model failed. Right. So, and he was doing mostly smaller films. So, which I, I would argue it sounds like it would be harder. Like, I feel like if you, sp- if you spend a lot of money, you have a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. But also, you can, spend, you can get a lot of marketing. And if you're trying to do indie film, a slate of indie films, doesn't that seem like it would intuitively be harder? It is. It is harder. And if you look at the, what I did is I got all this movie data and plotted the sort of risk distribution. Right. And, the, you know, we always think of horror movies now because we always see things like you and they're, they're coming out and everyone or us and you know, they seem like, oh, this was a sure bet. But actually, right. if you look at the profit distribution for horror and indie films, it's, it's just complete crapshoot. There's really no pattern you can discern from it. As opposed to action movies, which are bigger budget, right. they're fairly predictable in how they're going to do. You were, so you were saying action movies have twice the potential of breaking even mm-hmm. or, or earning money above? I believe so. But a horror movie, if it is a hit, can be... Could be a much bigger outlier to the upside, or exactly, a, okay. and the return on investment can be huge. Because okay. horror movies are relatively cheap to make, okay. but when they hit, they hit big. Okay, so Ryan's scheme didn't exactly work. People put a lot of money in based on these factors, the simulation, mm-hmm. and then when the actual movies came out, they were terrible movies. Nobody went. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe that'll be the end of that, or somebody ten years later will come along. Probably with. less than that. I mean, when you look into the uh, history of the movie industry and the financial industry and their overlap, it's like every five years someone pushes a new model. Okay. Now you talk about the difference between hedging and insurance, and mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. From one chapter to another, tell me about hedging and the idea that you use to represent that in in the book. So hedging is. Uh, you know, is, is risk management. So what you're doing is you're just taking less uh, upside and in exchange you get rid of downside. You're accepting less upside um, and as a result you can lose less. Exactly. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a good, that's a, like a, a good, that's an okay trade-off for most people. Yeah. In most cases. It's just taking less risk. Right. Um, and the example, I had two examples for that. One is Arnold Donald, the CEO of Carnival. Uh, cruise line. Yeah. Okay. And I thought it was an interesting story because he's incredibly cautious. And we always talk about the CEOs who charged ahead and took risk blindly. Not, but really the CEOs who have longevity are the ones who hedge. How long has he been in the CEO of Carnival? Um, I think like five, six years okay. before that, he was at Monsanto. Okay. But he has a fascinating story. He grew up in poverty in New Orleans and just had this very slow, steady meteoric climb. The other example I talked about was David Bowie. Um, who turned out, it turns out, I don't think a lot of people know this about him, was a really brilliant risk tactician. So when he was young, like 18 years old, and the music industry came to him, they said, well, you know, you can, uh, we, you know, we'll give you a big advance and we own all your royalties. And he's like, no, I'll take a smaller advance. But I want more later. Exactly. Which is okay. taking a risk on yourself because most people don't make it in the in- music industry. The royalties right. is all you got. So he... He took it like a negative hedge. He took more risk. Okay. Then yeah, he, he leveraged what he thought he would earn in the future. I, I get, well, maybe yeah. leverage not the right term, but... Yeah, exactly. He took more risk then. Instead of letting the... Um, you know, it's funny. Like, when I was hiring financial advisor, uh, brokers in another life, mm-hmm. we would talk about... Like, we would have salary negotiations. Mm-hmm. And I was always more excited about the people that said, give me less guaranteed mm-hmm. and more potential upside a year from now yeah like that like those were the people that worked they those, i mean 
those yeah, are the, those are the type A and exactly okay. that's what he did. But what's interesting is when he was in his forties uh, or fifties, he took the opposite bet and he securitized his royalties, and he could do that because he owned them from when he took the risk when he was younger. I almost feel like that was like a part financial decision, <laughs> but it was part almost uh, performance art. Like, and now <laughs> I shall turn myself into money. <laughs> like he turned his catalog into a bond. Uh-huh. He said, "Okay, it's very unlikely." that I'm going to write all these new songs that are going to be as mm-hmm. big as the old songs. So let me put the whole thing into a bond and there'll be an interest payment, but I'll get all the cash today. Also, streaming was starting. He was worried about that. Was he? Yeah. So he's he, so brilliant. So he was like, I mean, it was like Napster time. Like, I mean, this was early. Like, so Napster. Oh, oh, oh so stolen streaming. Yeah. So he was, worse. he was like, my royalties aren't going to be worth much at all. Okay. I may as well securitize all them. Right, so, that, so that's hedging. Um, and then... Insurance is different from hedging how, just generally speaking. Well, with insurance, what you do is you keep the upside, but you pay someone to get rid of your downside. So it's not the same thing. No. Insurance is different from hedging in that what you're really trying to do is offlay risk, but not give up upside. Exactly. I mean, you have to pay you know, a premium uh, if you buy an option or an insurance contract, but after that, the upside is all yours. So, okay. So what's the example that you use to illustrate that idea? Well, this is sound a little strange, but I talked to a magician. Okay. And I talked to her about all the ways she insures against a risk failing. Like sawing somebody in half and, and they actually die, or what, what, are, what are we talking about? Or just the, the, you know, the way she manipulates the audience. Okay. So they trust her. What's her risk that somebody sees sees through the charade or she just does a trick like she can't find the card (laughs) (laughs) oh she blows a trick live it happens all the time and the reason why i talked uh to a magician is uh robert merton who solved black shoals you know this sort of famous insurance pricing model uh, Ben, she's still name dropping i don't know i don't know if we want to edit that out all right go ahead um every 10 percent of the audience will know robert merton but in this office, we, we revere uh, Merton. Go ahead. Well, he's the one who gave us the price that we all use for uh, insurance prices. His right. father, who was also a famous sociologist, he became a sociologist because his a career as a professional magician did not work out. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. So pivot to option pricing? No, pivot, pivot to sociology. A sociology? Come okay. up with a self-fulfilling, he came up with a self-fulfilling prophecy with unintended consequence. Okay. Be in like because magi- magic didn't work out. Uh, how does the magician? Ha- ha- are we giving away too much of the book? How does the magician figure out how to insure against the risk of a bad trick? Um, she builds up trust in the audience. So they'll laugh it off if it happens. They or? don't notice because they're so attuned to what she how she can distract them. Oh, it's so killer. Yeah. Um, all right. Any other chapters that we should just mention that people should get excited to read? Surfing. I, lo- I love them all. So, but oh, thank you. You love the surfing chapter. I love the surfing chapter. Do you think that's going to be the big one for everyone? I don't know. I like to think. I mean, what I love is when I talk to people and they all connect with a different chapter. Okay. Maybe I love the surfing because I got to go to Hawaii. Okay. That might just be. So you ha- you have memories. You ha- you have the experience of writing it that kind of colors your. I got to hang out with these surfers in Hawaii. It was just. Now these fun. are okay. Now these are not regular surfers. These are the people that are paddling out to a hundred foot waves. Yeah. Like waves that look like they're fake. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's the what's the concept that you were illustrating there? A systemic risk. Wow. Okay. I would say that's a pretty big one. <laughs> yeah. So they have an annual risk conference to talk about risk because when they take big risks, they pose risks to others. And okay. certain technology allows them to lever up and they are talking about how to be more responsible. The surfers. Yeah. Like what risks? Uh, so how do they risk each other's life? Like hitting someone with a, your board? Yeah. Or if you wipe out, that takes resources. You have to be rescued. People put themselves in the line when they rescue you. Oh, and you. so then the next person that's out there doing this foolish thing can't. Exactly. Can't get saved. 
Mm-hmm. And huh. so if you, you, you know, you can get a jet ski to push you on a wave you have no business surfing. You yeah. wipe out and someone else isn't, doesn't have someone the to The jet ski them. isn't there to pull them to safety. Well, that's what's interesting about jet skis is they're both hedging and insurance. What's fascinating about them is they can help reduce your risk, but you can also flip them both upside down and take more risk. I mean, that's what leverage is. Leverage is a negative hedge. Okay, so here's what I want to tell you. Uh-huh. This should be a Netflix show. Each chapter is an episode. This should be a season. Uh, you agree with? I mean, we're, we're talking to a production company about it. Okay, good. All right, let's not blow that. But <laughs> listen, this is the book. <laughs> this is the book. Like, this is the one that everyone's going to be talking about this summer. This is like the like pop science, mm-hmm. like finance, economics book. Um, you're going to be famous when this Thank is you. over. Are you going to come back? Of course. You promise? Of course. Okay. All right. Listen. Alison Schrager, buy this book. You're going to love it. It's so much fun to read. You will learn so much no matter what level of investing you're at. Thank you. Thank you. All right.